Hi, welcome to the Newberry Chronicles. I'm Michael. And I'm Rebecca. And this is a podcast where we read through all the books that have won Newberry medals and then talk about it. And this time, we are going to be talking about Lois Lenski's Strawberry Girl, which won the Newberry in 1946. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what we're going uh, to be about. Um, I'll give a brief overview of the author because I think her story... It seems important to talking about this book. Um, and she's also kind of interesting. Um, we're, we're actually running into a lot of interesting authors, I feel like, um, through this through this podcast so far. And Lois Lenski is not an exception. Uh, her name is Lois Lenore Lenski. And actually, though, you were looking... It's, it's actually Lois Lenore Lenski Covey. Is that right? Yes. If her, she changed her name, she definitely married Arthur Covey. Wikipedia said Wikipedia has her husband's name as her last name, but also has okay. all the other names in between. And her professional, like published name, is Lois Lenski. Um, anyway, uh, she was born in the late eighteen hundreds and uh, was the daughter of a Lutheran pastor um, and a theologian who wrote some like New Testament commentaries. And I include that because. As we'll talk about later, uh, faith becomes an important part of this book. Uh, but uh, she was born in Ohio to this Lutheran pastor. So you got that kind of classic Midwest upbringing, Lutherans, Ohio. <laughs> she went to Ohio State uh, and studied education and got a teaching certificate or license or whatever they called it back then. Um, but she also studied art. And uh, after she graduated, I guess she didn't want to teach and so she went to art school for several years, um, and there she met the man who would become her husband, Arthur Covey, uh, and she married him, and they moved to Connecticut. So quick aside. Okay. <laughs> Michael, I had started to read the history of Lois Linsky a while before we did this podcast, and um, when we were getting ready to do the podcast, I was like, why can I not remember anything that I read about this woman? And... I remembered when I was looking at Michael's notes that I got caught on her marrying Arthur Covey and then went on a rabbit trail to find out if she was the mother or the grandmother of Stephen Covey. And if anyone on this podcast knows who that is, he um, wrote this whole time management course of which the company that I used to work for like based all of our planners off of. But um, in my bird trail, it did not seem that they were related. So... That is just a quick aside for you. As you can tell, in this household, we have fascinating interests. <laughs> uh, just just the most interesting <laughs> little um, things that pique our curiosity. Um, but anyway, Arthur Covey, not related. Not Stephen Covey's dad Not or related grandpa. to the pioneer of time management. <laughs> um, anyway, this guy painted murals. Wikipedia says he's a muralist. I don't know if that's like a... A profession, but he was artistic. Uh, and Lois Lenski was artistic as well, and um, her ambition was to be a painter. Um, she eventually switched to, or not switched, but she eventually incorporated writing into her work, um, but her uh, entry into children's literature was actually as an illustrator, and she did some pretty famous stuff. Um, she did illustrations of an edition of Wind in the Willows. She uh, also did the illustrations for the first edition of The Little Engine That Could. I have not looked at the first edition, so I don't know if those are the illustrations that I'm familiar with, but um, that's a pretty big deal. Um, 
She also illustrated all of her own books. So like Strawberry Girl, which we're going to be talking about here pretty soon. Uh, she did all the illustrations in that. And there are, um, there are quite a few in, in the book. Um, and uh, writing was sort of a mid-career shift. Uh, she mm-hmm. didn't write her first book until she was in her 30s. Um, when someone else suggested that she write about um, uh, stuff. Well, and did you read about this? I remember briefly seeing it, but if I'm remembering correctly, Arthur was not very supportive of her writing ambitions in the beginning. I think he just wanted her to um, be a stay-at-home wife and not have any career ambitions. Is that right? Yeah, so this is kind of funny. Um, He married her under the expectations that she would be a homemaker. Um, but she hated housework. And so she would hire help to, um, to, to do the housework so that she could do her, her own artistic pursuits. And I think that he eventually kind of came around yeah. and was cool with it. Uh, probably once she started winning Newbery medals. <laughs> Um, Hopefully before maybe that. Maybe before that, yeah, because she had been writing books for a long time by the time Strawberry Girl came around. Um, but there's a little bit of women empowerment for you. Yeah, that's right. Lois Lenski, feminist icon. At any rate, um, so when she started writing books, uh, most of her books fit into two categories, and these are like conscious categories that she cultivated. And if you look in the front of Strawberry Girl, it'll tell you what else um, Lois Lenski wrote. They have them categorized under these like columns. And so she wrote historical novels and she wrote regional novels and those were her titles for them uh the historical novels were like that you would expect where she uh uh would write about uh, accounts from history and kind of uh dramatize them into novels and then the regional novels of which strawberry girl is one um were basically where she would kind of pick a regional culture that she had visited or was familiar with in some way and uh, uh, write a novel that took place in that and striving to be as accurate and observational of the, um, of the culture as possible. Uh, and so Strawberry Girl is one of those. Um, and this, like, just as an aside, I took a whole class on this in grad school. Like, this kind of fits into the broader trend of uh, regional writing, which is something that kind of comes out of travel writing. Um, it's kind of probably boring for people who didn't take this class, but... Um, with the rise of magazines and periodicals in the 19th century, um, there was a lot of interest in travel writing. So people would go to exotic locations and then write about their experiences there. And um, uh, this eventually turns into what was called like the local color or regional movement, where rather than going to whatever, India or, or, um, you know, Jamaica or, you know, something, a lot of travel writing is we're, we're a European or a white dude go into an exotic place where there's uh, people who aren't white, and I'm going to kind of write about them and maybe kind of condescending ways, but also trying to understand them. Um, Regional writing was within the United States. So someone would travel to a different part of the United States and uh, then write about that so that someone in New York would know what it would be like living in, you know, whatever, Alaska. Um, And uh, so this Strawberry Girl is one of those. Uh, When she was in... I don't know. I, don't, I can't remember how old she is. She was, but like kind of middle of her life, she started having health problems. And this is all from Wikipedia and there's no, there's no, in Wikipedia doesn't say what health problems there were. Um, but the doctor recommended that 
she'd get away from the Connecticut winters. And so during the winter, she and her husband would travel and visit places um, with more temperate climates. And uh, one of the places that she travels is to Florida. Um, and uh, Lake Sh- Lakeville, Lakeshore, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting the specific town that she went to in Florida. Um, but anyway, um, that one of those winter visits is where she got the kind of idea for Strawberry Girl. And she says a lot of the incidents in Strawberry Girl are based on actual accounts that people have told her when she went there. Um, so just a little bit more about her, because I think this is funny, um, before we actually get into the book. Um, in her time, like when she was publishing these regional novels, um, a lot of people considered them to be too dark and grim for, for children, because uh, children's literature, you know, was, you know, it's supposed to be wholesome, it's supposed to be lighthearted. And um, she was here portraying like people who were poor or people who were marginalized in some way. And so uh, there's, of course, some like grittiness and darkness associated with that. And so people at the time were like, well, that's pretty, that's pretty, uh, it's pretty edgy for, for kids literature. And um, she was very much of the opinion that children's literature isn't just for like kind of diverting bedtime stories, but they should like raise social awareness. Um, And she was kind of like an anti-censorship person and all that sort of stuff. Um, And uh, that's cool. Um, On the flip side though, ironically, um, more modern uh, evaluations of her work have kind of criticized her for the opposite thing. Um, uh, When, you know, modern scholars have looked at her, uh, her stuff, a lot of times they've seen that, seen it as didactic Uh, and maybe overly sentimental at times, and maybe whitewashing some of the less savory elements, especially when it comes to, like, the relationships between, like, the kind of, like, you know, white settler colonial Americans and, um, you know, black people or Native Mm -hmm. Americans or, you know, what have you. Um, And And that's definitely in this book. Those concerns are in this book. Yeah, it's, yeah, but... uh, you have to kind of like sympathize with her. It's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because right. she was pushing the boundaries of children's literature in the 40s. But but now, you know, we might look at it, you know, when children's literature is a much more wide open genre than it was at the time. And uh, we kind of see the shortcomings in terms of like depicting the time period. So right. Um, anyway, I think I wanted to give all that introduction because I felt like that because this book we keep we keep talking about nonfiction books, and this is not a nonfiction book, but it edges right up to nonfiction. And because of that, I think it's important to kind of understand like a lot of the the background for it. Um, so, um, Rebecca, why don't you tell us what this book's actually about? Yeah. So, Strawberry Girl tells the story. It takes place in the early nineteen hundreds um, after the Seminole War. Um, and Which for the sorry, were you going to no, talk about what this for the record? Like there was a series of seminal wars. Again, I had to look this up. Uh, I'm not. I don't know this off the top of my head, but there is a series of wars against the Seminole Indians, and it. I mean, it's a little more complicated than this, but like, like it basically shakes out to this is how um, white settlers gained control of land in Florida uh, that was previously you know occupied by the the seminoles right and that's alluded to a few different times in this book yeah and so this book strawberry girl describes crackers which are descendants of anglo-saxon pioneer settlers in early florida 
And just as a quick aside, as I was reading that, I don't know if you had the same question in your head, but all I was thinking when I kept reading about crackers was, is this where it came from to call white people crackers? Yeah, I have no idea because in this book, it's like a term of endearment. It's yes. like self-identified. Yeah. It's not derogatory. I don't know. Anyway, I just found that funny. Um, but this book features two main families, the Boyers and the Slaters, and they are relatively neighbors and what you would have. Like, obviously, they both have a lot of land. They don't live right. next door to rural. each other, but probably their closest neighbors were each other. Um, the Slaters have been really established in this community. Uh, they're very proud that uh, their grandfather was an Indian fighter, and he won this land, and so it's theirs. Um, the Boyers, big yes, big yikes. The <laughs> Boyers are uh, migrant farmers. They've come from North Carolina, and they're now in Florida, and they plant strawberries. Um, so the conflict really emerges between these two families, and a lot of the questions that come up are questions of land ownership um like fencing is a big deal um not not like sword fighting sorry no like fencing their land so that the animals can't have open range which creates problems for um the slater's animals not being able to reach water so really a lot of the story centers around these two families and their conflict um the main characters are birdie boyer who is strawberry girl um and then a lot of the book centers around her relationship with the with the neighbor boy, Jefferson Davis Shoestring Slater. Um, So you're not ever quite clear if these two are friends, um, but their stories are often juxtaposed against one another. Um, In my opinion, Birdie's dad is kind of painted as this fairly honorable man, and Shoestring's dad is an alcoholic who can't provide for his family. Um, and so the book ends with a successful crop for the Boyers and the Slater father converts and goes to work for the phosphate company that's leasing the land that his cattle run over to get water. So he ends up going to work for that corporation that's ruining his way of life. And the Slaters also decide that they're going to plant strawberries after seeing the Boyers' success. So some things that I left out is, um... A lot of this book is very process-oriented over the planning of the crops and the harvesting of the sugar cane and just the different practices that those people would have had. And um, it also focuses a lot on the struggle to do those things. But that's kind of the overview. Um, anything I left out that you think is important? I No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, there's a there's, few other... It's not just these two families. There's, like, other no. characters, but that is... And, like, they go to church, and there's, like, right. uh, like they go to school at one point. Although and not that's, a, that's a, a kind of a subplot that becomes important in the end is um, the, the role of education and Bertie's desire to get educated and Shoestring and his brother's kind of, like, indifference about it. And um, so that there's not a lot about that, but I do think Linsky tries to tie that in all together at the end. Um, in a way that's supposed to be this really significant part of the book, but it didn't quite land for me. So I'll, I'll get into what I liked yeah, before you, what, I... What did you like for... I really liked the setting of this book, and I liked the dialect. Um, I also liked that everybody has a dialect, and it's not like there's, you know... I don't know, because sometimes in these books, they only... Pre- 
portray the dialect of the people that are right. kind of being like these are the poor folks other, so they have yeah. the dialect. I mm. think she's pretty consistent throughout the book about that. So I really liked that. I don't really know very much about early Florida. The only other book I can think of that I would have read around like even just kind of around the same area or time period would have been Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is obviously a very different yeah. book. Also about a very, a very heavily, different group of people. Very heavily relying on dialect. Yes. Zora Neale Hurston was a student of, yeah. like, she studied a lot of that. Which That is a great book and, and a better book. But <laughs> I I also enjoyed the char- what little character development that we got. I really liked the relationship between Birdie and Shoestring. That was kind of like my favorite part of the book is just kind of watching them navigate life together. Um, but that's what I liked. What did you like? Um, I liked a lot of that same stuff. I like that. I mean, this is kind of like her goal is you observe these people and try to depict them as they are warts and all. Um, and I, there, I think the book is structured in such a way that there are moral judgments, but there kind of aren't in the same way that you would have them in other books. Um, A lot of the book is kind of just saying what happens, right? And we see how the characters react to those things. Um, And we see how, like, specifically Birdie, whose perspective we're in most of the time, we see how she reacts. But I, I think the book has some interesting tensions in them because the narrator doesn't ever editorialize in the same way that like other children's lit editorialize. Like I'm thinking about like some of the other early books we've read, like um, and I realize these are nonfiction, so it's a little bit different, but like the story of mankind or uh, invincible Louisa, like both of those have narrators that present a very clear moral point of view, not just because of the structure and what happens, but because they tell you what to think. And I think this book does less of that. And there's some interesting stuff. And again, we can, maybe in some of the stuff we didn't like, we can get into like, I feel like there are some shortcomings with this approach. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, like in the fight against, like between these two families, you kind of have escalating stuff that happens. Like first, the Slater's cows like run over the strawberries. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the dad... Uh, Birdie's dad does something back to them and it kind of escalates and like you get to a point where uh, people are like the characters have like different opinions about what is being done Uh, uh, and sometimes it's surprising like sometimes the dad will seem friends and then they'll do something that's kind of you know strongly aggressive toward the other person and you'll see different people react in different ways and I don't know I, I think that that's interesting and if you're going to depict a community that has these sort of tensions. Um, it's nice to see those tensions actually brought out in ways that feel fairly complex at times. Um, I, um, I I like the attention to detail, although as we'll get into with the stuff we don't like, like this is not my favorite type of book. Um, you know, the it, it reminds me a lot of the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, which have good things about them, but, you know, one of their flaws in my mind, or one of the things I don't like is how... They just step by step walk you through all those things, um, but at that same time, like there is a like really terrific sense of place, and there's a really terrific sense of like this is what the experience of doing these things was like. You know, there are some passages that are really nice that are really just kind of tactile and descriptive of like, okay, here's what it was like to um, weed the strawberry patches, or here's what it was like to 
go to the general store and like have like different interactions with people. Like, I don't know, like this is something that I think a lot of regional literature does or local color literature does, which is that because it's so observational, you get almost this documentary type approach where they're just including details because they want to paint this picture of, of um, the environment. And yeah. I think there's some nice, some nice stuff there. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, before we shift to be negative, uh, <laughs> there, there, there are things that I like about this. I'm not thinking about like pr- the structure that we always have is like the introduction, then what we liked and what we didn't like. And that maybe makes the podcast end on downer notes because we end on what we don't like. Uh, but I will say I didn't dislike this book. Like, mm-hmm. For, for the things that we were going to say that are negative, I think that there are good things about this book. And yeah. there are things that are um, special about this book. And I don't think I've read any other Lois Lonsky books. I don't remember. But maybe you know special about just her work in general. like This, this attention to small mm-hmm. uh, communities. I was looking... Um, and it's not just like small southern communities. Like she does like New England communities like in Vermont and stuff like that. Um, and I think that that is there's a skill in kind of capturing the sensory details uh that make a community what it is that is is not to be taken for granted and she does a good job i think of that yeah i think she is talented and i also i like that she took these stories from real life as much as she could like she interviewed people that lived there um you know and and put their stories in into this book and so i i think that that is all very neat um, you kind of touched on this, Mike. Oh, go ahead. So now let's, okay. this, is the, well, this is the time to bring out our segue, knives. The, not our knives, but kind of a segue. You mentioned this, Michael, but this book is not very plot oriented, which are the books that I enjoy. Um, and at some points it felt anticlimactic to me because what it will do is tell you, it, it, also just the way that she builds like hope I'm expecting something to happen after it because just the natural progression of like books that I've read is everybody's really looking forward to this thing happening and then the conflict is going to be that it doesn't happen but in the end it works out okay and this book sort of does that but it's more like here's this struggle that we've had after we were really excited and then the next day everything's okay and they have a big harvest and there's no explanation of how they got that harvest if the cows destroyed the plants or they think oh and and the other thing is the slaters are always telling them that they're i I forgot to mention this in the summary the slaters are always telling the boyers that they're not going to be successful because the florida climate is so hard and there's no way they're going to raise strawberries or whatever they're like no we did it in north carolina we're going to do it here and so you start when they have all these struggles you think that the slaters are going to be proven right and they're proven wrong, but there's no explanation of why. They're yeah, that's proven true. There wrong. are multiple times, like not just once, but like multiple times, where the book describes something that destroys their strawberry crop. And may I'm probably stating it too strongly to say destroyed because they eventually do harvest strawberries, but and super successful. Yeah, and but you know, and maybe this is just like in the moment it seems that way, but. They'll be like, like, like I mentioned earlier, the instance in which the the Slater's cows come and trample all the plants, and they're like, "Oh no, our crop!" And then the next chapter, they're still growing the strawberries, and it's yeah. not clear. Yeah, I 
sorry, I'm interrupting. No, you. no, I, I'm, I'm glad that I'm not the only one because I, I kind of was reading it like, am I missing something? I felt like, you know, so it just, it felt kind of anticlimactic to me, but I, it's also written, while it is a book with like a, a theme going through it, it's also very episodic, which in general, like is not a fault of the book. That's just not my favorite kind of book. Um, I, this is kind of petty. But a lot of the illustrations come before the the part that she's illustrating. So you'll see an illustration of something that you haven't read yet. <laughs> it kind of like gives it away what you're about to read. And that maybe that's just the publisher and how they put the book together. But I felt like I should either be seeing this on the same page that I'm reading it or seeing it on the next page. I don't know. That I would be interested since she me. both writes and illustrates that. I would be interested in like her input on the format because yeah. not a lot of authors do that. Right. So I again, that is probably might not even been anything that Lois did, but I thought it was strange. Um and we've kind of touched on this a, a bit. It's unclear what the narrator actually endorses and what they don't of of how these people are living, but I feel like the book is clearly on the side of the boyers. Oh, I think and, so. And, and there are just some things that are very hypocritical about them that I don't feel like is ever fully addressed. And, and that bothered me. Like the dad will say, he goes and, and beats this kid over something I think is stupid, but he, he beats him. And the family's like, no, don't, don't. Don't beat him, whatever. And he's like, well, you should learn to love your neighbor. And I just was <laughs> like, okay, that's problematic. Um, another thing is th- that same dad is really, the reason why he beats this kid is he doesn't think he's taking care of this cow. And Birdie's like, and I get it. My dad just really loves animals, and he really wants them to be taken care of. And then when he gets mad at his neighbor, he kills three of his hogs. So it's just things like that that... Um, they do, the wives do have this moment. Um, the mothers do have this moment at the end where they're like, yeah, both our husbands, they kind of, they've been kind of ridiculous and I'm glad we can all be friends now. So it, it's not like, he doesn't get off scot-free, but I do, there's just some some problems in the characters that I, I think that it's very clear the whole time that the Slater dad is problematic because he's an alcoholic and can't provide for his family. And the boyer dad just makes mistakes sometimes. Right. And well, and that, he's also the 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 other dad, the Slater dad, is also closed minded, right? Because he doesn't right. he doesn't want he doesn't care about his kids getting educated. He doesn't want like he's always criticizing these new ways of doing things. Right. Like he's very he's like a regressive character in that sense, where the boyers are bringing something new, and the dad is just like, "You guys are real dumb. Like this isn't going to work." <laughs> and then he's always proven wrong. And so I, that's what I was. I meant this like think, earlier with the structure is that yeah. even though a lot of it is observational and without judgment, the way that the plot uh, uh, like rolls out proves the Boyers right time and mm-hmm. time again, and the Slayers are almost never right. Yes, I agree. And there's things about their character that I think that the author is trying to highlight as like positive things that I think are really negative things. But again, it was a different era. You know, there was a different belief about parenting and when you parent other children and what that looked like. So I have to take that into account, too. But I just didn't really like that dad, I think is what I'm trying to say. The other thing, and we've mentioned this, too, but this book is clearly on the side of the um, colonizers. 
and that is just, again, part of its era, but it is problematic. So what did you not like? Well, I mean, you kind of hit on some of that. I didn't really love, again, like I, part, part of the appeal of a book like this for me is the way that you have this kind of non-judgmental thing. And so having the dad do stuff that's like blatantly hypocritical um, or just stuff that would have just reflected the behavior at the time and without really like, you know, ha- you know issuing a, a like a reprimand, you know, from the authorial voice. Like, I think that that's like a positive thing about the book, but it's inconsistently applied because the story itself kind of works to validate a certain point of view that, I don't know. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into, so... A main thing that I didn't like, because most of the book I was kind of reading long and I was interested in, oh, I like that there's like tension and I don't really know like who I'm supposed to side with or whatever. Um, but I want to talk about the end of the book because that's like <laughs> my biggest issue with the Let end of the loose. book. Let um, loose. And so let me describe first how the book ends. So spoilers if you've not read Strawberry Girl and another spoiler. I hit on this briefly. You you did but... in, in your plot synopsis, but I'm going to get more specific. Okay. Um, so we have Mr. Slater the whole time is like this bad dude, right? And I am saying that he is a bad dude. I also think most of the characters think he's a bad dude because he's an alcoholic, uh, you know, will abandon his family and go and drink in the bar and use all their money. And so they're poor. Like there's a scene that's really sad where he mm-hmm. uh, has just gotten paid for something. I don't remember what. And so the family has gone into he sold town. A cow. He sold a cow. His, the family goes into town. They're going to buy all these things, like uh, new clothes and stuff like that that they need. Uh, and so they get all the stuff, and the store owner is like, here, I'll hold this, and you go get the money. And they go and try to get the money, and turns out he's, like, drunk and used the money and gambled it away or some, some, something something of that nature. And so, like, he's he does things that are... I think at the time and now we would consider like, that's not great. Right. He's not a great dude. Um, and so none of what I'm about to say is an endorsement of that sort of behavior. Um, but I don't really like the way it plays out um, because he's like that until the very last chapter or second to last chapter, the end of the book, um, where, as Rebecca mentioned earlier, he gets converted and to Christianity. To Christianity, of course. <laughs> I like, didn't say that. <laughs> this is a this is a mainstream novel from the 1940s <laughs> the in America. People probably like converted to what? <laughs> he converts to Buddhism. Uh, no, he converts to Christianity, and uh, it's it's through a weird circumstance, honestly, where he uh, the the past like this this traveling preacher helps out his family, and um, it's nice. Like that that element's nice. Um, what I don't like is he converts to Christianity and instantly all of their problems evaporate. Uh, you know, he is no longer an alcoholic because, I don't know. I, again, 1940s, people have different I- ideas about alcoholism. But if you are a regional writer whose job is to be accurate and observe problems, like surely you've observed people with alcoholism and understand that it is more complicated than simply a moral failure. But that's kind of like what the book presents it as because he instantly just gets better. At the end of the book, he becomes a much more uh, a nicer, open-minded person. And again, like of course, people can have conversion experiences that change them, but there's no build-up to this at all. Like he's just bad dude, bad dude, bad dude. He converts, and then he's nice, and all their all their problems are gone. Um, 
And I just find this really unsatisfying. And uh, I also, it just doesn't strike me as realistic. Like if the book is supposed to be realistic, which is like a stated intent of the author, um, we should know that life is more complicated than that. And again, like going back, like I know she was criticized in her time for it being too dark. Um, and so I understand that like the conventions of the time would mean that you have an unambiguous happy ending and blah, blah, blah. Like, so all of this is definitely like me in, in 2022 complaining about it, but that's all I got, right? I'm living in the year 2022. That's my perspective. Um, but also, um, living in the year 2022, I'm going to, I'm going to bring out from the closet, my my socialist hat and put it on uh and and play socialist which for the record in the 1940s was not quite so marginalized as in 2022 so in a sense i am embodying the spirit of the time period um you know fdr fdr's president we got the new deal um we got labor organizing unions have made you know great strides etc so here i am you know 1940s man and if you hear that little Tap. I'm, I'm That's Michael my, smacking his I'm hands smacking, together. I'm smacking my fist. This is the the sound of the dictatorship of the proletariat <laughs> seizing the means of production. Um, but anyway, uh, so as Rebecca also mentioned, he converts to Christianity, and in so doing, he becomes. The book doesn't describe it this way, but it's it's very clearly portrayed as like the book doesn't use these exact words, but he's portrayed as becoming a functional member of society. Right, mm-hmm. he's no longer an alcoholic, no longer wasting his time. He suddenly values, like his kids are going to school now and all this sort of stuff. And I'm a school teacher. Send your kids to school. However, uh, a big component of his uh, conversion and becoming a functional member of society uh, is that he begins to work uh, for this this company that is um, uh, extracting phosphates, uh, which I think they use for fertilizer. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So anyway, this involves like basically like excavating land and stuff like destroying the 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 natural environment well and the reason why he has to work for them is he can't have open range for his cattle anymore because they've taken over the land that they would use to get to water so basically they're eliminating whatever means of living he had right and so here's where this is this is my socialism talking um so a conflict, a tension throughout the book that I found really interesting uh, is that um, when the Boyers move from North Carolina, they come and they have bought the land. They are landowners. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are acting like landowners, right? They want to fence in their property so that they can't be used by their neighbors. And, um, you know, they have a very proprietary sense of the land. Um, whereas the Slaters say... Um, hey, this has been common land for generations. And I mean, ironically, they say this is like, it. since we took it from the, the Seminole, right? Like they, they say multiple times, my granddaddy was a Seminole or an Indian fighter. Uh, so, you know, whatever, asterisks, like they, they stole this from the Seminole. So maybe this is karmic, but um, they have been living with common land where everybody in the community uses this land to feed their cows, irrigate stuff like and then here we have people who start buying up land and kind of closing off people's resources. So a big tension between the Slaters is the Slaters think, hey, this is land that everyone should be able to use. Uh, whereas the Boyers say, we bought this land, we we're trying to grow crops on it, and by it being common land, uh, we can't you know, 
profit off it to the extent that we would like. Um, and the book is, I think, really interesting in exploring this tension until the end, uh, in which, like I said, the structure of the book uh, makes it such that, like, kind of the interesting observational stuff, you kind of run into this moral wall. And, you know, he's a productive member of society, and he allows uh, this common land to be taken over by this company that's going to be extracting stuff from the land. And, like, I mean, if we fast forward, you know, decades, you know, we can, you know, see the the issues of this that would come up in the, you know, 70s or whatever, you know, where you have, like, rampant pollution as a result of industrialization and that sort of stuff. But obviously, like, the 1940s and certainly in the beginning of the 20th century people wouldn't have realized this but anyway he allows a corporation to come and buy land um and work for them and i just think this this sucks as a resolution for this tension because it and again this is my perspective um it means that the like the uh, the moral viewpoint of the novel becomes an arc of people who have valued co the common good um, ceding it to private interests uh, and that being a good thing. And mm -hmm. I know it's it's complicated. This dude was not a good dude and blah, 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 blah. But the way that it equates being a morally good person and being a productive member of society with um, becoming uh, uh, like a laborer for a corporation and allowing land to be fenced off so that only private interests uh, can benefit from it. Um, I don't know. That's a bummer. And... I mean, again, I'm wearing the socialist hat. I've grown a big old beard, and I look like Karl <laughs> Marx now uh, in the moment. Um, Karl Marx, you know, when people quote about, like, you know, religion being the opiate of the masses or whatever, um, this is one of the things he's talking about is uh, religion uh, is used to justify a certain status quo for powerful people uh, and the promise of, um, you know, moral cleanliness and the promise of like uh, an afterlife where the material you know conditions of the present world are irrelevant uh, allow for people to become complacent and complicit with you know capitalism private interest blah blah, blah. Um, and that's exactly what happens at the end of this book and I think Karl Marx would probably be like wow what a depressing ending uh, but Lois Linsky at least as the book is structured makes this like Yay! Isn't it nice that these mean old, this mean old dude is now uh, working from a corporation? He no longer there's no longer this common land. Uh, this guy no longer even like works for himself. He is you know working for this corporation, and that's supposed to be a good thing, I think. And again, mm -hmm. like the book is kind of hands off. Like the book is pretty observational, but I think it's pretty clear by the ending. Like this is a happy ending, and I don't know. Again, my perspective in 2022. Uh, bringing out my dusty labor movement uh, socialist hat from the 1940s says this is not really a happy ending, and I don't like that it's presented as such. So there's my rant. So that was a nearly saying all of rant. that. Do you give this book a thumbs up? Yes, <laughs> I've you know I've I'm a class trader now. I've, yeah, I've betrayed. So I'm taking on my socialist hat and just putting on my writer hat. And yeah. I, I think it's it's well written, well observed. Yeah. I agree. I think that um, I think that her strengths outweigh her faults in in this book. And um, while it's not my favorite kind of book, I did enjoy reading it. Um, so I give it a thumbs up. Yeah. Not thumbs... too 
but one. My thumb is weakly upright. A like bit if to a the side. if a strong breeze blows, my thumb might fall over. <laughs> um, but it is yeah, mostly it, it, it's up. Yeah, it's pointing. Especially, and we have to take into account, which I think we've said that throughout this podcast. But we do have to take into account the era within which these books were written. What was the you know thinking of the time? What did people know at the time, and what do we know now? So, um, I would I give will, it a thumbs up. So I will say though, like again, th- thumbs up. And my the the asterisks that I would like us to put with the thinking of the time is we have to consider the author, right? Um, and because, as I pointed, as I mentioned a second ago, when, when I was like, you know, pulling out my Marx and Engel uh, rant, um, but uh, there was, you know, a very vibrant uh, sense of um, co- like the common good and common interest in the United States. You know, like the nineteen forties, you know, were perhaps the height of that certain kind of like collectivism in the United States. And I mean, you even have like stuff like, and I know Woody Guthrie is a little bit later, I believe. Um, but like this land is your land. This land is my land. Right. Like that is like a song that like, it has a verse against like private ownership of land. And so like in the time period, there were perspectives that were different than this, but Lois Lenski is someone who is, um, you know, uh, not from this area and coming and observing. And I think that that makes her position differently than, say, if someone who is in the Slater's position had written this book. Um, so I think that also, in addition to saying, well, there were some viewpoints that are of the time, we also have to consider she's not really native to this land, and so yeah. she may not completely... She may have kind of missed some of the... Like how how the natives would have completely felt, you know, if you are a person of means coming into a land that largely is like poverty, um, perhaps you might have missed some of the class tensions. Very good point. So that's that, but it's good. Yeah. Um, our next book, next time, uh, we're gonna be in the nineteen fifties. Do you remember what book? Not book. Do you remember what year? It says 1959. 1959. Okay, yeah, cool. So, Rebecca, do you want to briefly mention the... Yeah, um, our next book that we're going to be talking about is The Witch of Blackbird Pond by Elizabeth George Spear. So, join in next time. Yeah, I've read this book before. I don't think Rebecca has. I have not, but I have heard much about it, so I'm glad to finally be reading it. It is um, late in the game for me to be reading it, but still. Yeah, um, a classic of assigned reading in elementary school. Yes, it's true. It's true. Um, but I went to a conservative Christian school, so you probably couldn't have read a book with the word witch in it. So Maybe. There's a lot of conservative Christians in The Witch of Blackbird Pond. Yeah, I don't know. So, thanks for listening. Bye.